Just prior to our text this morning, which will be the first Samuel 24 reading, we find David again on the run from Saul. Saul's army is closing in on him, and David is providentially saved by this last-minute Philistine attack to which Saul thinks he has to go turn and respond. But after that, Saul refocuses his efforts on hunting David down, and that brings us to the beginning of the text in 1 Samuel 24. And we'll look at this under the three headings that are there on the back inside page of your bulletin. The test, the testimony, and the concession. So 1 Samuel 24, first the test. David is in the desert of En Gedi. It's a region of cliffs, caves. It's on the western side of the Dead Sea. And yet somehow, Saul, who has spies everywhere, as we've seen, is told that David is hiding and where he is. And Saul sets out with 3,000 able young men from all of Israel to hunt David. So it's a hand-picked elite force that Saul has. And Saul's, uh, David's band of sort of malcontents that he had in the cave of Adullam about 400 men, has grown to about 600 now, but David is still outnumbered 5 to 1. So Saul comes to a cave in the region, and even kings have to obey the call of nature. So he goes into the cave to relieve himself, and as God's ordering providence would have it, he chooses the cave in which David and his men are hiding. They're hiding in the far back, the text says, because these could be elaborate and deep and convoluted caves. It's a system, really, of caverns. And Saul now is doubly exposed. He's physically vulnerable, and he's separated from his forces. He's served up on a platter. And the men in David's cave say, This is the day the Lord has made. Not exactly, they don't exactly say that, but that's the gist of what they say. They actually say, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Now, there's no direct oracle to that effect in 1 Samuel, but it's easily inferred. It's easily deduced from the whole narrative. I mean, clearly, it's a truism. Jonathan certainly thought that the Lord was going to cut off all of David's enemies. And here, we have the enemy of David and of the Lord delivered to your doorstep. It's obvious to the men in the cave that providence has handed David's enemies to him. I mean, it's a textbook case of it, really. Who but the Lord could bring such circumstances to pass? Of all the caves and all the caverns and in Getty, he walks into my cave. And how is this not justice? Saul has made repeated attempts on David's life. He has just slaughtered all the priests at Nob and then everyone in the city. 
So at this point, right, Saul's a deluded, demented, mentally unstable enemy of Yahweh and his people. And David seems, at least initially, to agree with his men, to sympathize with them. He creeps up unnoticed, and he cuts off a corner of Saul's robe. Now you can bet, this is an act which falls far short of what David's men in the cave wanted to happen. But it is a subversive and symbolic action, which echoes throughout the narrative of 1 Samuel. Way back in chapter 15, Saul grabbed Samuel's robe, the skirt of it, and tears it. And Samuel says, the Lord has torn from you the kingdom and given it to one who's better than you. Then in chapter 18, Jonathan takes his robe off, gives it to David as a sign that David and not Jonathan will be the heir of the throne. So the robe is a sign of the office. It's a sign of royal rule. And its tearing is an attack on the office holder. It's much like ripping up the, 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 a picture of a loved one in the presence of their loved one. It's a sign that the kingdom is being stripped from Saul. But the connotations here are even richer. You remember Jonathan, when he had that emotional departure from David in the field, there's a couple chapters back, chapter 20, he says to David, do not cut off. Same verb used here for cutting the robe. Do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off all of David's enemies from the face of the earth. So to to cut off the robe is not only a symbolic attack on Saul and his office, it's an attack on his house, on his offspring, the very thing which David has sworn he would not do. So if you're not going to do the thing, you should not do the sacrament of the thing, the sign of the thing. Right? To avoid sin, you avoid all the occasions of sin. And so afterwards, David, who's clearly reflected on this, is conscience-stricken. He regrets deeply what he did. And he tells his men, and they clearly think this is a failure of nerve on his part. He tells his men, Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed. Lay my hand on him, for he is the Lord's anointed. Of course, the men, they think this is a great missed opportunity. You can imagine these marauding, you know, militia force that David has thinking, and here they could even be thinking theologically clearly, but you, David, are the Lord's anointed. In fact, we know the Spirit has departed from Saul, who is plainly not the Lord's anointed, but the enemy of God's people, the slaughterer of priests, the killer of innocent women and children. There's no question here about who the Lord's anointed is. Nevertheless, David insists. Not only does he stand firm, but verse 7 says he sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. Sharply rebuked is actually 
he tore into, or more precisely, it means he tore a strip off them. It's a play on cutting off Saul's robe. He repents of cutting off Saul's robe, and he cuts into his men, verbally cutting them off from the violence. It's quite a scene deep back in the bowels of this cave, to which Saul is not privileged, unaware of any of this high drama, finishes his business, leaves the cave untouched. Second, then, the testimony. David takes this bold and this dangerous step. And here he's reaching out in love to an enemy. And he leaves the cave. He calls out to Saul. And it's a scene of deep respect and humility and tenderness. My Lord, the King. You could only imagine... Like the shock, the confusion, the sea of emotions triggered in Saul hearing this voice behind him. He looks behind and he sees David clearly some distance away. And David bows down with his face to the ground in an act of homage to the king. And then David gives what I'm calling here his testimony. And this is a masterful, sophisticated speech. There are many in 1 Samuel. This is another one. He begins, David does, by saying this. Why do you listen when men say, David is bent on harming you? Now, that's a clever opening. Because it challenges Saul's construal of reality. Yet it blames it on Saul being ill-informed and having bad advisors. It's an extremely clever move. Saul, you must be listening to some bad people. Not, you're a demented lunatic seeking to kill me repeatedly. Why are you listening to men who say this to you? It's extremely skillful. Now Saul will see how the Lord has delivered him into David's hand in the cave. And that is men urge David to kill Saul. David essentially saying to Saul, look, I've got bad advisors too. Everybody's got the bad advisor problem. I got some guys back in the cave wanting me to kill you. You got some guys who are telling you to come hunt me. Surely you don't want to do that. I didn't listen to these guys. You shouldn't listen to your guys either, Saul. So then he says, I spared you. I said, I will not lay my hand on my Lord because he's the Lord's anointed. That's the principle David is standing on through the whole text. And we'll come back to it. And then he says this, see my father. What a statement, right? Evoking this earlier part of their relationship. This tender relation. My father, look, this piece of robe, your robe in my hand. Now, I'm going to make an aside here without doubting David's sincerity. We know this. It is in David's best long-term interest, politically, that the person and the sacred honor of the king be held in immense reverence. He wants it to be so when he's king. So, you know, without accusing David of being cynical here, we should be aware of that. He's being noble, to be sure, but it is in his best interest. 
So without doubting his you know, sincerity, we should note his skill, his rhetorical skill. He's holding this up, and what he's saying is, what I did was wrong. Here is the evidence of my wrongdoing, my symbolic assault on you and on your house. It's right here in my hand. And the evidence of this wrongdoing, Saul, plus the fact that you are still alive, is at the same time the evidence of my virtue and my remorse and my repentance. It's a masterful presentation. This is both my guilt and my vindication. Thus the conclusion. See that there's nothing in my hand that indicates that I'm guilty of any rebellion. The token of my sin, now repented of, is the token of my innocence. But he's not finished. Nevertheless, Saul, he says, you keep hunting me down to take my life. But for all of his humility, for all of his repentance, for all of his respect for Saul, David's not morally confused. Right? He has great moral clarity here. He knows who's in the right. And he goes ahead and he pleads with God for justice. May the Lord judge between you and me. Right? And then David doesn't even bother to veil what he expects the Lord, the judge, to do. He continues and says, may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me. This is quite an apology to this point. May the Lord avenge the wrongs you've done to me, but my hand will not touch you. And then he cites what appears to be an old proverb, which is a direct indictment of Saul's wickedness. From evildoers come evil deeds. It's, a, it's an astonishing thing when you go to apologize to someone and your repentance ends three sentences later with calling them an evildoer from which evil deeds come. But that's what David has done here with all due respect and tact and humility and honor. With, from evildoers come evil deeds. Against whom, David says, against whom has the king come out? Same verb as From evildoers come out evil. In other words, he's saying this. Out of evildoers come evil deeds. What is coming out of you, Saul? Against whom has the king come out? Why are you coming out evilly after me? It's another skilled play on words. And then David says, who are you pursuing? A dead dog? A flea? In other words, David's saying, look, I'm impotent. I have no power over you. I'm not a threat. I'm nothing but a flea. But again, the narrative is more ambiguous than this because David is a master. And the fact that these are rhetorical questions could have just a hint or maybe a little more than a hint of threat. In other words, Saul could hear David's words this way. You think I'm just a dead dog? You think I'm a flea? You think it's just a flea that you're pursuing? You may find out that me and these 600 marauding guys back here can be a bit more troublesome to you than that. So what do we have here? Do we have David protesting that he's harmless and innocent and impotent? Or do we have a veiled threat? He has, after all, already asked the Lord for vengeance. And he ends with an appeal 
for God to uphold his cause, to vindicate him, to deliver him. And so this act of repentance has become an act of public legal witness, done with immense love and respect against Saul. One of the great speeches in the narrative sections of the Old Testament. And that brings me to the third point, which is Saul's speech in response, which I've called the concession. You know, this is like the politician who comes out and says, yes, we lost. We've, we've lost. I'm going to concede. And that's what's happening. He's overwhelmed with emotion. He chokes out this response. He says, is that your voice, David, my son? What's he called him to this point? The son of Jesse, the son of Jesse, the son of Jesse. Which was a way of depersonalizing and dehumanizing him and not using his name. But now, it's David, my son. And Saul wept aloud. He just breaks down crying. This tremendous pathos in realizing, if only for a few brief moments, that one has wasted their life. That one has waged war on God. That one is excluded from the future purposes of God. That one has, in their recklessness and blindness, torn the most humid and sacred bonds of friendship, of kinship, of solidarity like Saul has. That having just a moment of clarity to see that one's enemies have been overinflated figments of one's imagination. Right? And that the human cost of holding on to your position and your power has taken an enormous deadly toll on you and on the country. That you have lived a life of lying and of suppressing the truth and of a failure to love. And yet, from the future course of the story, we know, we know, this is just a moment of clarity for Saul. It does not represent a new direction arising out of the true beauty of repentance. He is, after all, manic. He's wildly oscillating and unpredictable. And the spirit has departed from him. So do not be confused. This weeping is a prime example of gushy, sentimental spirituality. Without character, without covenant, without resolve, without lasting, enduring fruit. It's a moving scene, to be sure. But in the life of Saul... It moves nowhere. Yet the concession, the words he says are absolutely true. When you have your lifelong mortal enemy say to you, you are more righteous than I. That's a vindication for David. Saul is amazed that David let him walk away unharmed. He even pronounces a benediction on him for it. And then he gives you the concession of concessions. Finally, here in the narrative, the first public acknowledgement of what Samuel told him decades ago. I know that you surely will be the king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. You will get the robe. And he asks David for an oath to not cut off his descendants and David gives him the oath. They depart. You'll notice this at the end of the text. They depart. Saul goes home. What does David do? He's not restored to the court. 
He goes back into the wilderness cave stronghold. The very outcome indicates there's no real reconciliation for all the moving emotion of the scene. So let's conclude. I want to make two applications here. I'm going to call them principles and patience. First one is principles. So this is a classic case where if you are one who likes to read and interpret providence, who likes to divine what's happening through events unfolding, like if you are someone who says, well, this happened, then that happened, then this opportunity was presented, so the Lord must be telling me this. Right, this is a case where if you're doing that, you would be lethally wrong. Lethally wrong. There isn't that approach. Seemingly universal approach. A great deal of presumption and even danger. The men in the cave think it is so obvious. It's a divine opportunity. It's an open door. David's going to be the king. We know the king's enemies are going to be defeated. We know Saul is enemy number one. We know he's a satanically inspired mass murderer. I mean, who in this room would not advocate for the removal of Saul from office by force if necessary? We know the spirit has departed from him, and we know he is slaughtering the Lord's people in the land. This is the day the Lord has made. Only it's not. In fact, David is initially taken in by this. Cuts off the robe. But he quickly repents. Because he realizes that we live by principles and not by providence reading. The Lord's anointed here, even if the spirit has departed, means the one still in office. Again, that might not be obvious to the men in the cave. I'm not sure it's obvious to many of us. David's view is this. He's in the office till he's out of the office. And as long as he's in the office, we're going to treat him as the Lord's anointed. He knows I cannot ascend to the throne by murder. But if the Torah forbids cursing a leader, it surely forbids killing a leader, even a monstrous leader. It was a tough sell back there in that cave, as the ferocious conversation with his men indicates. But sometimes an open door. Now get this. Listen. A providentially open door. Sometimes a providentially open door is a temptation. In all of its attractiveness, it is not to be walked through. How do you know the difference? Well, the same way David knew it, by deep reflection on the principles of God's word, That will provide the discernment needed to tell the difference between providence and temptation. And here David realizes this. He must not grasp. He must wait for the kingdom to be given. 
And that brings us to patience. David's temptation here is like Adam's. Right? It involves the lust to grasp. When you get underneath what's going on with David here, it is that. He wants to take. It's a deep seduction to political impatience. Will he refuse to grasp? Will he renounce the methods of political violence, even symbolic methods of political violence? Will he live on the margins in the wilderness or will he seize the throne? In this again, he points us quite plainly to Jesus, who being in the form of God, refused to count equality with God a thing to be grasped and who therefore emptied himself and took the form of a slave, who in the wilderness like David was hunted by the principalities and powers, tempted to seize all the kingdoms of the world before the time, who refused to become king when the masses wanted to make him king, who when he was pursued to death by the Sauls of his day and he was reviled, did not revile in return. We heard that in the uh, First Peter reading this morning. We find it hard not to revile in return just if we use social media. I mean, if you could just outlaw reviling in return... Right, the, the bandwidth of social media would be reduced by 50% or more in the country. Jesus refused to revile. But what did he do in his weakness, in his apparent passivity? It's a very active passivity that Jesus has. The text says he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly, which is just what Saul does in our text. May the Lord avenge. As deeply as it cuts against the grain of our natures, we are called to follow this waiting, this non-grasping Christ who loved and prayed for his mortal enemies, who turned the other cheek, who receives glory on the other side of the bodily resurrection. The failure, right, the failure to believe in the certainty of God's future coming judgment leads to so much ungodly grasping, so much impatient striving, so much political leverage seeking. So look to Jesus Christ this morning and know this. We renounce the way of the men in the cave, which has its own deep, aggressive, this-worldly political logic. It even has its scripture verses. We don't have the time. I hinted at it, but I could make the theological case for the men in the back of the cave. We renounce them. We follow the way of the greater David. We wait in patience for the Lord's judgment, knowing that he will exalt us in due time. We renounce violence, verbal violence, emotional violence, physical violence, political violence. We renounce turf protecting, or grasping, or political machinations. We renounce returning evil for evil in history. We renounce reviling. We renounce tit for tat. We renounce evening scores. For we know God will bring just vengeance at the end of history. So we heed the words of the Apostle Paul, who says, Do not take revenge, 
My dear friends, leave room for God, for his vengeance. If your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. We can wait. We can be patient. It is the Father's good pleasure to give. It is not ours to take. It is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Amen.